Welcome one and all. It's the 21st of April 2019 and you're listening to Sunday Brunch. A very warm welcome. Today the director Neil Jordan fills us in on his tense new thriller Greta starring Isabel Huppert and explains why scares in the cinema are all good fun. I'm pushing, you know, ordinary human contacts and relationships and a set of human behaviours to certain extremes which are both grotesque and comical and, you know, horrific at the same time, you know. That's what I wanted to do, if you describe that as camp, fine, to take that description, you know. Plus. You've got this great sense of discovery, and that's where the Royal Society comes from. It comes from a, these people with a sense of wanting to find out for themselves. The brilliant author Adrian Tinniswood takes us inside the work of the Royal Society, pioneering scientific advances for more than 350 years. Plus we go through the papers too, so pour yourself a coffee, it's time for brunch. So let's begin with a cultural suggestion for the Easter weekend. I don't know what you're up to, but if it's not quite as sunny where you are as it is for us, well, why not retreat indoors to the cinema? And fresh from her Oscar-nominated twisted turn in the 2016 film Elle, Isabel Huppert is back with another thriller, but this time things are getting a little bit silly. Greta is directed by the Oscar winner Neil Jordan, who's become a specialist in genres of the unexpected. And he spoke to Monocle's Ben Rylan. To many of us, Neil Jordan is the man who shocked us with The Crying Game, a thriller he made in 1992 that still boasts one of the most stunning twists in cinema history. It also won him the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. More than two decades later, one might expect the process of making movies to have become second nature for the filmmaker, but not quite. It kind of feels like you've never done it before, but then you realise you have, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I have to say that it's, I mean, making one's first film is it was this terrifying experience. I didn't go to film school or anything like that. The only, the only experience I had with movies was uh, working with John Borman on Excalibur, you know, where he was doing this huge production in Wicklow. And he, I, I'd kind of written part of the last script with him. I'd written the last draft of the script with him. And he wanted me around to make a video of him or make a documentary of him making the film. So that was my only experience of filmmaking. And when I came to make Angel, it was like deeply intimidating experience, you know, because on the one hand, you're so young. On the other hand, you're kind of a naive, you know, you're and you got all these big fat guys you know, lugging cables going, oh, you're going to do that, are you? Oh, he's putting the camera over there now. You know, it's like a fucking intimidating experience. And I realized why it's so difficult for women, you know. Because uh, it's not only a male-dominated experience; it seems to be dominated by men with big fat guts. You know that kind of thing. Sorry, I, th- I do. It's true, and it's for me. It was a really scary place to be, but I loved constructing images. You know, and when I come to make this movie, I hadn't made a movie for about six, seven years. Uh, the same pleasure in make constructing images was there. You know. So. What is it that that often sparks you to want to embark on a new project, where whether it's your latest film, Greta, or any of your previous projects? Is there is there something common amongst all of those that you can point to and say it's always that moment that makes me want to jump up and, and start making this? Well, it's very weird. It's, 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 it's hard. It's often you don't understand it yourself. You know what I mean? It's like... Um, at the moment, there's a project. I'm, I'm often offered things to do, you know. Like Greta, I was asked, I was offered that, you know. That was sent to me by an agent. 
and by a production entity who ended up not making it. But filmmaking is so weird that often happens. But you have to, at the moment, this is quite a big, mo I can't discuss it, I can't talk about it really, sorry, but I'm being, I was offered this really big, big Hollywood movie and I'm going, and my agent was going, she's saying to me, from what she said, you can't, you can't really feel this thing, can you? I'm, I'm going, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you know. And eventually, then I began to scribble and began to write, and suddenly a landscape is emerging, and, and it's very hard to describe, really, you know. It's all, always to, often to do with character, you know. If I can understand a character, I can see where character wants to go or something. It's, it's a very hard thing to describe, it really is, you know. I'm lonely. Greta, everybody's lonely. That does not mean that you get to follow people around and terrorize them. His new film, Greta, sees him taking a seat in the director's chair for the 19th time. Isabelle Huppert stars as the title character, a lonely woman living in New York who strikes up a friendship with a young woman named Frances, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. But just as a somewhat maternal friendship starts to form between the pair, it becomes clear that Greta isn't your average lonely little lady. It's a classic setup that one might expect to see in a film of a bygone age. And in fact, it was that very simplicity that appealed to the filmmaker. And the hook was so simple of the handbag, I thought, that's okay. I wish I never think of things as easy, as simple as that, you know. Okay, that's how you get, get to be simple. The other thing was that uh, it was very simple. It, it's, it's, I mean, sex does play a role in this because the central character in the traditional version of the stalker film would have been an invasive male, wouldn't he, really? And when it's a female, suddenly, oh, okay, all sorts of interesting things come to the surface, you know? The film is about loneliness, and it's about a weird pathological view or version of motherhood, you know? And I thought, okay, that would allow me to make a, you know, kind of a fairy tale in a contemporary urban setting. I thought that's cool. Fans of Neil Jordan's work might recognise the haunting track that plays during the film's opening moments. The famously cool and distant sounds of Julie London are a perfect fit for this sophisticated yet proudly fluffy thriller. Where's my heart? I just thought it was a song about somebody wanting somebody that wasn't there anymore you know it wasn't there that's what i thought and but i i was in two minds about using it because I, I had already used that song in a movie i made called the butcher boy and i used the frank sinatra version of it and i was always going okay i don't want to tell any lies with this film you know i don't want to say to people oh you're going to see something like amelie or you're going to see a heartwarming story of two characters who bond over a dog and then one of them dies of cancer or you know that kind of thing and I don't want and I, I, I put that song on and it kind of stuck you know and uh, it I've of, often because there's a sense of play and a sense of mischievousness to the movie in a way and to Isabel's performance you know what I mean and that song implies something slightly different I just I just wonder but I do love Julie London you know 
It's rare for a thriller to venture into the notoriously difficult-to-define realm of camp, the reasons for which are understandable. Some critics have already opined the film's implausible plotting and all-round ridiculousness. Of course, such complaints rather audaciously miss the point. In her essay, Notes on Camp, published in 1964, Susan Sontag defines camp, in part, as something that should not be seen in terms of beauty, but in terms of the degree of artifice and of stylization. I'm pushing, you know, ordinary human contacts and relationships and a set of human behaviours to certain extremes, which are both grotesque and comical and, you know, you know, horrific at the same time, you know. That's what I wanted to do. If you describe that as camp, fine, I'd uh, take that description, you know. Where is my happy Greta isn't a scary classic in the usual tradition. Beneath all the tension, there's always a clear sense that everyone is in on the joke, which actually makes for an enormously enjoyable ride. For Monocle, I'm Ben Rylan. Thank you, Ben. And Greta, starring Isabel Huppert, is out in cinemas now. You're listening to Sunday Brunch on Monocle 24. The Golden Age of Aviation is a brand new series on Monocle 24, chronicling and celebrating all that was great about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. We'll be meeting pilots, designers, cabin crew, engineers and even pop stars to tell you stories about engineering innovators, fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits and the big brands that defined a new era of travel. You know, that's what it is for me. It's this feeling of, of optimism and, and possibilities and, and just sort of reaching out to the world, being able to shrink the world, bring people together. Download the golden age of aviation in association with Breitling every other Thursday. Welcome back, and whether you're just stretching and facing the day, or our mid-afternoon or mid-evening, wherever you are, a very warm welcome to Sunday Brunch with me, Emma Nelson, on Monocle 24. In a little while, we'll have a recommended read for this weekend. But first, let's look at the idea of what can be done in prisons to reform as well as rehabilitate and, indeed, punish. Prisons are a key part of any functioning justice system, but all too often, prison time has a reputation of encouraging crime more than it does stopping it from happening it again. Well, in New York, things are going differently because a scheme that brings college education into prisons is challenging the notion that a liberal arts degree is a luxury for the leisure classes. Here's Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan with more. A liberal arts degree requires students to study a range of disciplines across the arts, humanities and sciences. It's one of the most prestigious and popular types of undergraduate education in America, and it's always been tied to ideas of citizenship and civic status. The liberal in its title refers to the historical idea that a free person is better served by a broad, humanistic education than vocational training. Since 2001, Bard College has run a scheme offering a liberal arts course to some of the least free people in New York, inmates in the state's prison system. 
The programme is called the Bard Prison Initiative, or BPI. Max Kenner is its executive director. The first thing to understand is that what we do at BPI is not especially innovative. That college opportunity was an essential part of criminal punishment in the United States for over a generation. Virtually every federal and state prison in America had some kind of college program through the 1980s and into the 1990s, and those programs were eviscerated with the Clinton crime bill of 1994 coming into effect in 1995. So what you had was an overnight transformation of criminal justice in America, where access to college, the opportunity to plan for the future and improve oneself during incarceration was eliminated with a lightning bolt piece of legislation. I was an undergraduate in the late 1990s as this sort of story was unfolding. I had the idea that we at Bard College had something to offer, and we established what was at that moment one of you know really terribly few college programs in the United States. We started as a pilot, first enrolling students in 2001, and uh, have grown every year since, and now at BPI we enroll between 300 and 325 incarcerated New Yorkers full-time in academic programs that culminate in associate and bachelor's degrees. The curriculum spans the full breadth of liberal study, mathematics, science, history, anthropology, etc. And students leave prison and do terrifically well. It's not what people would perhaps think of when they think of the kind of education that prisoners can expect to get. That tends towards the more vocational. There's an idea that skills that prisoners learn should be useful in some direct way. It's worth pointing out that this is a debate that we have overwhelmingly when it comes to African Americans or people that leaders in higher education tend to think of as different from themselves. People argue about whether, for example, incarcerated Americans should have access to a liberal education or suggest that what we do in a classroom is too ambitious or too broad or too exciting. But then they send their children to the kinds of schools which provide or aspire to provide the kind of education that we do. So there's a hypocrisy that is woven into this debate in a way that uh, we find insidious and, um, frankly, sometimes rather bigoted. So what's it like to be a BPI student? Wesley Keynes works at the Bronx Defenders, an advocacy group for low-income people in New York's justice system. But before that, he was among the first cohort of inmates to enrol in the Bard Prison Initiative. He was in college when he was arrested and even got some college-level education in prison before the Clinton crime bill passed. But he found BPI to be a step up from that. There was definitely a different idea about education that was at play. It was emphasized critical thinking, critical analysis, engagement with texts. Classes were organized in circles, not in a more traditional setting where instructors stood in front and impart information, but in a circle so that you understood structurally, if not directly, that this was a shared educational experience. And I think that in and of itself created a space where for many of us who had traditionally been required to go into college or other primary schools and memorize and regurgitate, this was new. The idea that as a student, you had something to contribute to the learning in the classroom was phenomenal. 
Wesley has no doubt about the civic value of a liberal arts education. An educated citizen makes for a better citizen. And I think that that's at the core of the importance of education generally, but very specific to a liberal arts education, where you are given a wide palette of resources and information that you are required to engage and be critically thinking about and to be analyzing and to have a position on. And that process alone allows for you to look around your environment and seek ways to make it better. BPI courses are taught in seminars by academics from Bard and other colleges. I took the subway to Columbia University's School of Public Health in Washington Heights to meet with one of them. I'm Dr. Robert Flora. I'm a professor of social medical sciences and a dean of community and minority affairs at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. I'm also the senior advisor on public health to the Bard Prison Initiative. Does your approach to teaching incarcerated students differ in any way to your approach to teaching non-incarcerated students? And if so, why? Interestingly enough, I find that my incarcerated students generally have a better sense of history and a better understanding of the nature of the democracy that we happen to have here in the United States than is the case for my very well-educated students at this Ivy League institution. I typically discover that I don't have to explain the history of a variety of different elements that have produced the general picture of public health in the United States the way I often have to explain it to my students at Columbia. I find that they're more anxious to learn, they're hungrier to get at the material, and they have a much better vision of how public health might work in the communities to which they'll return than is often the case for my graduate students here who've basically been on automatic pilot to get into graduate school since birth. Dr Fullerlove's expertise in public health lends him an acute appreciation of BPI students' civic capabilities. Mass incarceration contributes directly and indirectly to some of the most pressing problems we have in urban health in the United States. And it is that connection that I try to draw for all of my students on the inside because I'm not simply giving them an education. I'm hoping that they will join me at the point that they're released in doing public health work in their communities. They are the ones who are often really well informed about how to reduce levels of violence that are associated with being a member of a gang. I would want to have them involved in that kind of thing, and I'd want them to see how efforts like that are connected to the broader picture of public health that we're trying to create here in the United States. And because I've had so many of my graduates from the Bard Prison Initiative, number one, find graduate education opportunities here at Columbia, but also find places in doing public health work at the Department of Health here in the city of New York, as well as in the communities to which they return, that I know that the return on this investment that I'm making is not just for me. It's not just psychically rewarding. It's done a really important job of promoting public health in the communities that these folks are working within. Is there something valuable to be gotten from providing this level of education in prison? The answer has got to be yes, and it's got to be a national priority. For Wesley Keynes, the expansion of educational opportunities needs to go beyond the walls of New York's prisons. Recognizing that a liberal arts education can contribute so much to good citizenship, the question becomes, why is it not taught in schools before people enter prisons and jails and are arrested? 
right? A lot of the reasons why folks are incarcerated and get the opportunity to enter the barred prison program is because there were educational failures. We lose a lot of potential, and that's problematic. For Monocle in New York, I'm Henry Rees Sheridan. Thank you very much indeed, Henry. And uh, the time here in London is 10.21. You're listening to Sunday Brunch. And a very warm welcome back if you've just joined us. Happy Easter. It's Emma Nelson here with Sunday Brunch, 10.22 here in London. Let's have a look at the weekend papers. Uh, Being Easter Sunday, we we should really be having hot cross buns to uh, fuel us, but instead we just have intellectual food, don't we? Cornelia Meyer, the economist uh, and broadcaster, has brought a stack of newspapers to go with us. And we're ranging far and wide. Welcome, Cornelia. Thank you so much for your company. Thank Uh, you so much for having me. So we go everywhere from... uh, the think pieces in Le Figaro. I'm going to have a look at something in the Observer, but you want to start at the absolute top. You're going for the Mail on Sunday. Yes, and before we go into the Mail on Sunday, there's one thing. I've looked at the papers, and I've, seen, I've just come back from three weeks in the Middle East and a week on the continent of Europe. Um, we are obsessed with Brexit here. Um, the French are obsessed, obviously, with Notre Dame. The Americans are obsessed with the Mueller report. And there have been other things going on like Sudan, like Algeria, and we just seem to be oblivious in the Western world to that, which is just a little think piece. But on, we're all going into our little silos, aren't yeah, we? It, is, it yeah. is just the way that things it's are. It's just the way things are. Now, on that happy note, um, the Mail on Sunday says that 40% of Tory councillors um, will back Farage. And then when you go on page two, it looks worse. Um, it says that the voting intentions of, t- of, of, of t- voting intentions, if Boris Johnson was the leader, uh, 65% would vote in the Europe European elections conservative and only 22% for the Brexit party. And apparently um, 43% of Tories think um, May should resign. So it doesn't really look very good for the for the conservatives. I don't think anyone, anybody would be desperately surprised by the fact that things are looking de- pretty bleak for the conservatives because they've done an extremely good job of beating themselves up into a mess. But what is clearly concerning here is the idea that 40% of Tory councillors will, will vote for a newly formed party called the Brexit Party, which is a single ticket party uh, led by a real tub thumping figure who's incredibly good at getting energy and commitment from people. But actually, there's very, very little substance behind what they do, apart from just to cause trouble. But, and, and when you look at it in the whole Brexit thing has not just split the Tories, but also Labour right down the middle. And more people in Britain identify with where they stand on Brexit, according to an FT poll, than where they stand in their parties. 43% on where they stand on Brexit, only 9% on where they stand on, on a party. So so this is, this is a tough time for the parties. But let's remember, in France... Um, um, Emmanuel Macron, um, La République en Marche, that is also was also a, a a newly formed party. This is the time Trump. This is the time of the movement. It's the time of the movement, but 
as we saw a few weeks ago with Matteo Salvini trying to get a, a sort of a nationalist group together with the AFD, these, these sort of cross-cultural nationalist parties gain traction, but it has been noticed that these these moments happen and they come and they go, that nationalist and protectionist parties and populist movements have a flash moment and then they seem to go away. The only difficulty that we have with Brexit is it is an enduring problem which allows the populist parties to gain even more traction. Absolutely, but if you look at it even even in Germany, if you look at um, um, the AfD, the Alternative für Deutschland, they have actually been quite, they're also sort of essentially single, they, they, they don't like foreigners, especially when they're refugees. Um, so they're also pretty single, single-minded. Um, Salvini is pretty good it is that 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 those movements and it, it's also part of an, an underlying social discontent of many people feel left out. I wonder what the effect will be on the European elections. Some have warned that up to 25% of the new MEPs could come from nationalist parties. How do you make the European Union function when you have such a strong anti-EU sentiment working from within. That's exactly it. And that's why they were so strict on us with Brexit. Because they said, look, we have Marine Le Pen um, in the Front National. We have Gerd Wilders in, in, in Holland. We have AfD. We have all these um, people who don't think really like us, the, 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 the EU establishment. And if we have Britain, if we have Britain making, causing too much of a fuss, that's dangerous to us. And you might have seen it in another newspaper. It was um, Dr. Liam Fox who said, oh, of all places in the world, in Iraq, um, um, that, oh, by the way, we will be very noisy and very difficult once we're in the EU Parliament, which um, is not very helpful. It is one of those unusual things that we are, help, we are in the United Kingdom heading towards a European election, which, and, you know, in the last few occasions, no one has really bothered turning up to. I have to tell you, when I was a freshly minted um, UK national, Congratulations. my first, my first in two thousand and eight, my first election was an EU election, and with great, great pride did I go to the voting booth. I think just you and I would be the only ones <laughs> doing that, and a handful of others. And you will <laughs> laugh about this. Somebody from the from the oil side, I voted for the Greens. There was just no choice where I was, so I voted for the Greens. It's all 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 theories and and, and parties are welcome. So conservative with a small C over here. Uh, right, what else have you found, Cornelia? I found uh, the very sad one of Derry's facing a new breed of, t- of, of terrorism. You saw that Lyra McKee, the, um, the, the very, very talented young journalist, um, got shot in the crossfire in, um, in, um, in London, Derry, Thursday night and sadly died. And, um, you know, with Brexit, with the, with the Irish backstop, um, tempers are flaring again. The one thing that was good about this was that, you know, all parties came out and said, no, we, we, we have moved on. We don't want to see this. But what we see is here that a gentleman, um, Jason Murphy, who is um, a superintendent, uh, who's looking at this, at, this, uh, at this incident, says there is a new, there are new terrorists, sort of, you know, the new IRA. So we are moving into, into new discontent. And then they, in, on, on the incident, Side, it has a thing that says po- um, poverty, um, paramilitaries, why Derry is still fertile soil for rebellious youth. You know, there's so many people, again, who have been passed by, who just flee themselves into extremist thinking and arms.
Um, what is, or do we know what the new IRA is? Because we had the provisional IRA before the end of the Troubles and the Good Friday Agreement. Um, but what appears to be the case here is that the, dissati- the, the, the problems have never really, really gone away. I know that a lot of people don't mention it, and there was a concerted effort not to mention any flares-up of violence um, in order to you know, remove the oxygen of publicity for, the, for, for any issues that might be happening um, in Derry, London, Derry. But what appears to be happening now is that the new IRA, this new breed of Republicans, are being trained by the old guard, that the explosives that are sometimes uncovered and the training that these uh, these new young um, people are, get, are, are displaying show signs that actually the old school is still there. Yes, and I think it's it's still there. And as as this in, insight article says, you know, we were the Good Friday Agreement generation destined to never witness the horrors of war, but reap the spoils of peace. But then, when you go to certain parts of London, Derry, there were no spoils of peace. So, so, so a lot of people just say, well, you know, if it's all the same, then um, it's it's fertile ground for the for the for for, for those Republicans to um, to to to. Well, to to galvanise those people, and let's just hope that the other lot will not do it. Uh, will not do it either, because let's not forget the the the, the troubles were troubles. Yes, because of the, the 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 IRA, but also because of the 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 the. the, the response of the unionists. What's astonishing, I'm just reading an article in the Belfast Telegraph at the moment, which is which is talking about the new IRA, um, and saying it's assessed to be more advanced technologically in developing explosive devices than any other of the IRA renegade groups. Clearly there are several yeah. in existence, and has become more skilled at counter-surveillance as a result of undergoing training in the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland. Astonishing thoughts, that they're actually travelling to be trained up um, well, you know, but if you look at if you look at the whole jihadist movement, it's not an astonishing thought. Terrorism is a is a mobile business. It's an, inter- it's an, it's international, an international mobile yeah. business, and and all the countries you mentioned were sort of are sort of Catholic countries, and so you, there there comes the Catholic Protestant sectarian thing in there again. And the 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 Belfast Telegraph is making a very very distinct line, saying since the start of the year, the new IRA has been planning to exploit Brexit uncertainty by stepping up its campaign in Northern Ireland with particular focus on security targets. It comes back to Brexit. It comes back to Brexit. And I've just done an op-ed where I said we must not peace must be our high, highest good. I did it in a in a in a, in, in Arab news, which is a, which is a, clearly an Arab newspaper. Um, right. Let's move on. The, the the thing that dominated the headlines this week was the terrible scenes of the fire. Um, at Notre Dame, that we were all told on Monday night that they had 30 minutes um, between saving the building and the building going. And then by Tuesday, these remarkable stories of hope emerged as everything from the great artefacts, the rose um, stained glass windows, and indeed the bees on the roof of Notre Dame all seemed to be saved from the fire. And it opened up this amazing question about what it is that unites a country and rather what it is in particular that unites France. Yeah, it was very good. There's an excellent op-ed by Jeanne des Sol, um, where she says the, 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 the biggest, the, the emotion, you know, Notre Dame is, is also a very strong emotion of, of for, the, for, the, for the need, the necessity of an identity. And she says, look, this is a place where we've crowned kings, we have crowned emperors, Napoleon. It is, it is, a, it is, a, it is, a, it is a place 
place um, where we 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 also where we uh, which is a big testament to our artisans, you know, the, the 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 wonderful the wonderful building. So it just represents France, and 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 it sort of it 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 showed us that France that that you know that France needed this as a piece of identity and you saw it just after 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 it started burning that there were people going to pray in front of Notre Dame um, and you saw also the huge um, um, uh, 700 million euros have already been donated by the French super um, rich to to rebuild Notre Dame so this clearly conjured the, the, the emotions of identity of a whole country and it also I found quite refreshing, explored how the French at least are able to look backwards into history because I don't know about you but when you go around a a beautiful old church or cathedral you are struck by the immediate uh, impact that a lovely building can have but our knowledge of history now is is rather superficial isn't it given the fact they're all looking at our smartphones and we can get a few dates here and there (laughs) but the fact is that the French were prepared to sort of plumb back into their identity and say actually Everything that happened inside this building, from the coronation of Napoleon to, to yeah, the Second coronation World War, of Louis IX, everybody is in there, and yeah. and it is important to 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 look backwards for yeah. our identity. And I, I, yes, and it says something very again. This this op-ed says, look, when we look at history, we have very little to be proud of because really our colonial past is not really something we're celebrating. There's so many things not to celebrate, but Notre Dame st- stood for so many moments of glory of. Um, one thing, though, that has come out is the fact that you can raise 800 million euros in a flash from the super rich to save a cathedral, which was struggling to get money for to be rebuilt before the fire. And yet the Gilets Jaunes said, well, if you can raise all that money in 10 minutes for, for a building, can you raise it for us? And other people have said, what is it about the desire to jump on a, an immediate need, such as the rebuilding of a, of a, of a, of a building, and yet... Poverty is a tremendous issue. Human rights are a tremendous issue. And that never seems to garner the kind of attention and indeed the money that Notre Dame did. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's here. There's a wonderful piece in Le Monde which says, Cinq mois après, five months later, who are the Gilets jaunes? And it basically says, look, these, these, um, the, 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 they have had 220,000 demonstrate. They still have 20,000 demonstrate. It's again a movement. It's the time of the movement. It's no longer the time of the ultra-right, the ultra-left. It's the time of the movement, which we also see, by the way, um, with what's happening now in Oxford Circus. I understand you were watching a a pink boat being escorted out by a lot of police officers. Oh, good grief. One of the most surreal experiences of my life occurred to me on Friday evening when I was looking at um, 1,400, an estimated, 1,400 (laughs) police officers drafted not just in from the Metropolitan Police but also from Kent Police, Sussex Police and the City of London Police were removing a pink boat not a big pink boat, but a pink boat that had been drilled into the floor in Oxford Circus, the central point of, of, of London's shopping um, area. And it took them more than a thousand um, police officers and some pretty hilarious negotiating with the, with the um, Extinction Rebellion protesters to get this boat out, the boat having been the rallying point for, the, for all the protesters. Do you know how they got rid of it, Cornelia? The protesters, being so terribly, terribly polite, agreed to release the boat if they could sing it out of town (laughs) and they're like some funeral cortege they ummed and awed as this little boat was pulled out by the police it was absolutely astonishing and meanwhile people die in Libya 
Cornelia Meyer, thank you very much indeed to, for joining us on the programme. Still to come on today's Sunday brunch, we learn about a few key ingredients. But first, a quick look at the weather where we are. Well, if you're away for the Easter weekend, you couldn't have chosen a better destination than right here in London. 25 degrees today, not a cloud in sight, and Easter Monday expected to be just the same. Hurry here, folks. It's the rarest of things, a national holiday that isn't freezing and wet. And if you can't quite face the working week ahead, then stick around in Northern Europe, basking in nice warm weather for the next few days. Unlike Spain, Portugal and Italy, who are all stuck under grey clouds and rain. But spare a thought for the residents of the town of Black Mountain in Northern North Carolina. Heavy rainfall has left the town flooded, with several residents having to be evacuated from their homes by dinghy. Not what you want for your Easter weekend. Here in London, the time's just coming up to 27 minutes past 10, and this is Sunday Brunch. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. This week, Jonah Hill made his directorial debut with Mid-90s, a coming-of-age film that follows a young kid in 90s LA trying to find his place in the world when he befriends some older skater boys. Well, Jonah Hill is well-known as an actor in everything from Superbad to The Wolf of Wall Street. But how does he fare in the director's chair? Well, on this week's Monocle Culture Show, Robert Bound sits down with the film critics Tim Roby and Simran Hans to talk about it. While we ride a piece of wood, like what that does to somebody's spirit. Stevie, what the fuck are you doing? Yo, Stevie fucking insane. So let's talk about the story first of all. It's a story. It's this is kind of are we in classic coming of age kind of territory here, Tim. Yeah, we are. Uh, but it's not one of those films where this was the summer that everything changed because we found a dead body on the railway tracks or whatever. <laughs> Nothing very much happens in the film. Uh, there's one crucial kind of critical moment near the end, which we won't spoil. But on the but I almost thought thought that was a forced element. Actually, I thought the film was at its best when it was sort of meandering its way through a summer of not much incident and this this kid slightly trying to figure himself out while um, immersing himself in this new culture and meeting these older boys. Um, so I think if it, the film has quite a lot of kind of modest qualities and I think yeah. the m- modesty of, of Jonah Hill 
picking a milieu that he really knows and remembers well and um, inhabiting it and re-inhabiting it, I suppose, in a kind of quite tactile, low-key way, I think is is the best, um, the strongest suit of the film here, rather than any real kind of dramatic oomph. And in fact, the more the film goes in that direction, the more I think it falters. So. The story, Simon, you reviewed this um, for The Observer New Review, and you had you had a few you had a troublesome relationship with this movie. But let's talk about the story first of all. As Tim says it kind of doesn't try to do everything. It's got quite a slim sort of universe in which it exists. What about the story though? So the story is is kind of where I start to have problems with this film. And I guess over the course of the episode, you'll hear that I have several problems <laughs> with it. Um, I've got a list here, and I'm ticking them off. Yeah, well, so as Tim says, it's kind of a low-key situation. It's a hangout movie. We're hanging out with these skaters. We're making new friends. We're having new experiences. We're learning about girls. We're learning about drugs. Getting a sense of family that we're not getting at home. But then it has these strange, quite sharp, dramatic, really dark moments. And what frustrates me is that these instances are used as a kind of dramatic punctuation. I don't think that Jonah Hill is particularly interested in really going there with the psychology of the character. It all feels quite superficial. And if it was just going to be a breezy hangout skater movie, fine. He kind of gets that tone right. But the problem for me is that these other moments that interrupt that very breezy narrative just feel like he's trying to telegraph something more serious. And that, to me, is revealing of his aims as a director. I don't think he's going for a breezy slice of life. I think he's trying to do something more poignant and more serious. And do you mean this is the beatings, this is his mum kind of talking about when she goes on dates and it's really weird and she's... Are these the dramatic... Yes. Uh, punctuation so, that you're talking you about. Yes, so I should I should clarify these moments of, of punctuation, as I'm calling them, are these quite strange, very jarring inserts of scenes where Stevie is sort of beating himself up. He's hitting himself really hard. He's quite a fragile, small little dude. Or he's rubbing his leg with a hairbrush to kind of punish himself. It's hinting that there's a darker psychology going on, that it's, you know, repressed male rage and toxic masculinity. These are themes that are kind of scratched. But I don't think Jonah Hill has the conviction to really kind of follow that thought through to the end. OK, that's interesting. Yeah, because they, they seem quite odd in the thing. So he gets beaten up. You know, we don't want to spoil too many of the things that happen. But as you say, they, these are two moments in it. He strangles himself with a PlayStation cord or something. Yeah. And I, and, and you kind of, I kind of, I thought, well, that's, he's not, nothing's going to happen from that. Something else ends up happening, kind of, which is far more serious just after this thing. And he gets beaten up, he falls out with his brother, as he's always doing. Um, it's strange, you're right. I wonder whether, though, when you're that age, these things feel exceptionally sincere, but then looking back on them, they, they're not. It, it felt maybe like a film about young people made by an older person. Do you know what I mean? It felt like you can kind of you, you don't remember the passion, those strange, crazy passions, those levels of boredom and passion that you have as a child. They seem kind of passively observed in this, and I wonder whether that was a point. I mean, I, I, I would say that I think it's better on the boredom than the passion, if you like. And yeah. I, I think that's a nice way of putting it that the themes are sort of scratched by these little moments and not very persuasively. For me, the, the very very beginning of the film got off to a bad start because his brother, played by Lucas Hedges is beating him up in the, the corridor of their home. And the sound effects are cranked up yeah. so loud that it sounds like, you know, Thor has come down from Marvel <laughs> Universe to, like, hammer his head into the ground. I thought it was so overdone that. And it kind of made me recoil. And I thought, uh-oh, this film is already being quite heavy-handed. Then, 
I, th- I settled into the kind of rhythm of the but general when they pull the up their skateboards, vibe. you don't hit, there are no sound Yeah, effects. I know, but the general skate, skater vibe, I'm like, okay, here we go. Now we have a more relaxed film in which Jonah Hill kind of knows what he's talking about. And I do think that is sort of 80% of the film and has plenty of merit. Mm. And I think especially the dynamics within the group. So there's a very interesting relationship with the the guy who gets him into the group, his friend. Ruben, who's Ruben, the young guy. Right. Yeah. The, the one who's only just a little bit older than him and who is kind of nominally his mate and who kind of brings him in and then very quickly this kind of rivalry and, and, and jealousy develops between them which becomes really toxic and every every time that Stevie manages to kind of gain points within the group Ruben really resents him and you sort of sense that he's being kind of nudged out and all of that and I actually thought that was really well done and in fact it was disappointing to me that the Ruben character sort of then drops out of the film in the second half really you know, he doesn't really get very much to do later which is slightly the point because he's been sidelined but still I thought that their energy together was was kind of really interesting and then yeah but then as, as Simran says it keeps lapsing back into these patterns of oh we've got to have a bit more kind of drama in the house now so we've got to have a bit of self-strangulation and, and whatever else is going on <laughs> and I was like yeah this doesn't quite work but like I say the, 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 the intergroup dynamics are strong and you mentioned Scorsese at the beginning and I think it's telling that the Ruben character plays this 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 role because he's very much to me like the Joe Pesci character in Goodfellas. Yeah. So it's like Ray Liotta is our hero and Joe Pesci is the guy who kind of comes on all chummy but is in fact really kind of screwed up uh, and bitter and quite quite violent and unpleasant towards him towards the end. I think that he's definitely borrowed a trick from there from that Scorsese playbook there. Tim Roby and Simran Hands in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound there for Culture, which previews every Monday at 1900 London time here on Monocle 24. Do come in. Monocle's May issue is our design special, here to help you choose the elements that will make your residence feel like a perfect home. In our review of the very best in class in the design industry, we drop into EF's brand new colourful headquarters, catch some time with busy city builder Winnie Mass and hitch a ride on a Bauhaus bus. Elsewhere in the issue, we spend a day with Spain's Guardia Civil to make sense of the role of the country's oldest police force when nationalism is a heated topic. And we also ponder if it's all engines go for electric mobility. In our property survey, we chart the world's most interesting developments from Sydney to Ho Chi Minh City and find out a great recipe for co-living. In the culture section, we finally come clean and admit that sometimes it really is okay to judge a book by its cover, especially if it was created by one of the world's best jacket designers. Also in the issue, we meet the entrepreneurs churning out new ideas for Melbourne's vintage milk bars and stay the night in a neoclassical palazzo. Monocle's May issue is on Newsounds now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. And let's enjoy our Sunday afternoons with our weekend read, our own little book club, for those who prefer to spend the latter half of the weekend with a good page-turner. This week, we hear from Adrian Tinnerswood, the brilliant author of a new book about the Royal Society, an organisation which has been pioneering scientific advances for more than 350 years, but not without its own little struggles. It's born out of a desire for experimental thinking, but also it's born out of a, a kind of a ferment in the 17th century. If you imagine, you know, if 
it's at a time when people are starting to question certainties. And they were certainties. Everybody knew the sun revolved around the Earth. You could see it. And if somebody said to you, well, hang on, no, the Earth spins on its axis, you'd say, well, why don't we all fall off it? And then if somebody said, well, no, how about if the Earth flew through the universe at great speed? And you'd say, well, why isn't there a wind? How's that working? People knew, they thought they knew how the world was. And they thought they knew because the ancients, classical scholars, people like Aristotle and Galen, had told them that's how it was. And people relied on authority. And then you get this group, this small group of men in London and Oxford, around about the time of the English Civil War, the 1640s and 1650s. They start to say, hang on, never mind just accepting what the book tells us. Why don't we look for ourselves? So, for example, I mean, ideas on human anatomy came from the second century Greek called Galen. Galen never dissected a human being. He just guessed from cows. And everybody thought, well, Galen said that's how the body is. That's how it must be. And you get people like William Harvey, who discovers that blood circulates from the heart. Nobody knew that because Galen had said it didn't. You've got people like Galileo looking with a telescope, looking at the stars and seeing the stars. When Galileo lifted that first telescope up to the sky in 1610, was it 1609? He saw millions of stars that nobody had ever seen before. So you've got this great sense of discovery. And that's where the Royal Society comes from. It comes from these people with a sense of wanting to find out for themselves. Take no one's word for it. That's the motto of the Royal Society today. Take no one's word for it. Look for yourself. The first part of your book is dedicated to these men who have this huge energy and appetite for learning. And they start, but they're obviously starting from the position that you've just described. So the experience has to come and the the experiments that are taken, well, quite a lot of them are are pretty awful, which is what you catalogue in your book. Oh, I know. And believe me, there is no one more squeamish than I am, Emma. And reading some of those experiments in vivisection, an awful lot of puppies and kittens got killed. Experiments with vacuum pumps, with air pumps. It was fairly grim. But then so was life. Samuel Pepys, who was a contemporary, he was actually an early fellow of the Royal Society. He never celebrated his birthday. He never celebrated his wedding anniversary. The most significant date in his life was when he was operated on for the stone, for gallstones. It was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to him because the operations on human beings were carried out without benefit of anaesthetic. So dreadful things were done to animals. They were done to people too. So at what point then, when we're reading this catalogue of catastrophic experiments on animals and on people, surely there must come a turning point when these brilliant minds start to discover things within the body of the Royal Society that suddenly makes the Royal Society a very relevant and dynamic thing. Yeah, I mean, they're discovering them all the time. You know, when they're performing these to us, these very distasteful experiments, they are discovering stuff anyway. It's not a switch. It's not an either or. They're finding out about the rings of Saturn. They're finding out about the nature of microscopic organisms at the same time as they're doing these horrible things to puppies. But to begin with, the Royal Society, and I should perhaps explain to listeners, I mean, it all starts one afternoon, three o'clock, one afternoon, I think it's the 28th of November, 1660. A group of men come out of a lecture that's being given by Christopher Wren, who at that time is an architect. He's a professor at Gresham College in London. They come out of his lecture and they go into another professor's rooms and they sit down and they say, let's have a club. 
let's form a club because we want some kind of continuity. We want some sort of organisation. And that's how the Royal Society begins. It is the oldest scientific institution in the world. And that's where it all begins with these dozen men saying we need to organise our experiments, our views on life, our need for discovery. We need to organise it. We need to make it a bit more systematic. It then gets a little bit more complicated, as all institutions do, that it then becomes a place where egos like to get in the way. And what it does is is people are desperate to get recognition and retain power. I get the sense in the book that somehow the Royal Society half loses its identity and becomes quite a, a sort of an internal warring shop for a while. I've never known an institution where egos didn't get in the way, believe me. <laughs> and you're quite right. One of the issues, I think, I mean, partly the thing is that these are powerful men within their own fields. They're sometimes very difficult men. I mean, Robert Hooke, who was the first curator of experiments and was a brilliant, brilliant scientist, was notoriously touchy. He was verging on paranoid if anybody said anything that he didn't like. So you've got these difficult men. One of the problems is you put all these touchy people together, these kind of almost neurotically paranoid people together who are very high achievers, and there are bound to be ego problems. But another issue, I think, was that in its early years, the Royal Society was desperate for recognition. And that means that it would pull in people who weren't scientists. It, it, It would accept for membership anybody who they thought could be useful. That meant government ministers, it meant noblemen, it meant anyone who was rich. I mean, in the early years, half of all the fellows in the Royal Society weren't scientists at all. They were just people that, that were the society thought might be handy. And those people also sort of start to exert rather an influence on the, on the Royal Society. And you also get, you know, the, the, the head of the Royal Society was and is the president. You get presidents who will were there for too long. Now, a president of the Royal Society can only be there for five years. You know, there's a fixed term. But back in the day, I mean, uh, um, Joseph Banks, the the botanist, was president of the Royal Society for 42 years. Uh, He wouldn't go. And he ruled it with a rod of iron. I mean, you know, if, if he liked you, you were elected to fellowship of the society. If he didn't like you, it didn't matter what you'd done, you weren't elected. And that kind of power was a real problem, I think, in the, in the early 19th century for them. At what point does it start to uh, open up and take a more, um, let's say, welcoming approach? I mean, the first woman isn't elected to the Royal Society until, what, 1945? And, and then people suddenly realise that actually the science of, let's say, the, the poison gas and the explosions that have taken in the Second World War means that science has a, a powerfully destructive force as well as being uh, something that is progressive. Yeah. And and, I mean, you're raising two really interesting and really important issues there. One is, you're right, there were were no women fellows of the Royal Society until 1945, although there were attempts throughout the early 20th century to um, uh, have women elected. There were women doing brilliant things in science. Um, But, you know, it wasn't just the Royal Society. It wasn't just the scientific world. You know, men were chauvinistic. Uh, there's, a, there's a great quote, I think, when, when Hertha Ayrton was, uh, was a brilliant electrical engineer, when she was proposed as a fellow, one of the, um, uh, one of the her husband was already a fellow of the Royal Society. Um, and uh, one of his friends said that really, he should never have married her. So he should have had a wife who put him in carpet slippers when he came home, fed him and, t- and led him not to worry. Then he would have done good science. And that's the attitude then. That's the attitude in the early 20th century. It took a long time to change. But we, we, mustn't, 
we mustn't blame the Royal Society unduly for that because everyone was doing it. You know, it was it was a social norm almost uh, that the the people who were kicking against it, people like Hertha, were were in the minority. Do you think that the Royal Society could be founded today? Oh, 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 oh. there's no need for it. We've already got one. Uh, but <clears throat> I, I mean, I, th- I think it's relevant today. You know, it, it's relevant. We need an independent scientific institution that promotes science because so much heavy duty science now is done by the state it's done by big corporations it's done with profit in mind or it's done with you know it's done with death in mind with a lot of the big military combines you know state state run military combines so to have an uh, an independent institution with the kudos and status of the royal society which now is is i would say is that it's zenith i mean it really is uh, the most important scientific institution in the world, not only the oldest, but I would say it's the most important. I think we need it today. Um, I'm not sure if it would, uh, for the reasons I've said, because the state does so much, because um, uh, corporations do so much, I'm not sure it could be invented today. So thank goodness it was invented back in 1660. And Adrian's book, The Royal Society, is out now and it is well, well worth a read. It's a really good tale. That's all we have time for this edition of Sunday Brunch here in London. Thank you for your company and thanks to our producer Ben Ryland and studio manager Sam Impey and our researcher Julia Webster. Up next, Ways Blood providing live music on the sessions at Midori House and then from midday onwards it's the Monocle Weekly. I'm Emma Nelson, a very happy Easter. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely Sunday. Bye bye.